0: Today we get a chance to look at 1 Peter, and uh, it really is a two-part sermon, so Michael Sieber, our executive pastor of ministries, are going to be helping me this morning. It's kind of a a tag team situation, so when I get tired, I'm going to just tag him and he's going to come up. Uh, I'm tired. Um, And I don't think it takes Lacey near as long to do her hair as it takes me in the morning, but still. You know, anyway, Uh, so a guy named Charlie Morton has played a lot of baseball in his day. He's a pitcher and uh, got drafted out of high school in 2002 by the Braves, and like most of those guys who get drafted, they rattle around in the farm system for a long time, and then they get spit out the other side, right? They don't really get a chance to ever do anything. But Charlie rattled around for six or seven years, and in 2008 got a chance to make his start with the Atlanta Braves against the California Angels and he and he won that first game and and in the last 13 years since he's he's pitched for the Pirates and the Phillies he he was on that really notorious team from Houston that won the World Series a few years ago yeah you know that that Kind of did that thing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. If not, you can ask me later. Anyway, uh now, and then he then he's, now he pitched for the Tampa Bay uh Del Reyes and, and now he he's back with the Atlanta Braves and he's pitching in the first game of the World Series. Imagine, 39 years old, pitching in the first game of the World Series, and he's pitching like a maniac. First two innings, right? And uh in the second inning, he he gets drilled. Uh, by by the, I think the guy was the MVP, not the MVP, but he won the batting title this year, didn't he, Gurriel? I mean, he, he gets drilled in the leg. And, you know, you can tell he's like, there's something wrong with that leg. But he, he retires the next two batters. And then he comes out for the third inning and he pitches to Altuve. And he strikes him out. And at the end, when you see it, it's like his leg is bending backwards because it was broken, Right? He had broken his fibula, and he's pitching 16 pitches. He retired three batters on a broken leg. He's not bad. I mean, the body is amazing what it can do in the midst of suffering, isn't it? It's amazing what the body can do in the midst of pain and exertion and physical suffering. And I don't, I don't want to make this into too much of a spiritual thing, but I got to tell you, it really did make me think about the suffering that... Jesus endured. It really did. It made me think about the fact that, that Jesus incredibly, infinitely more suffered than Charlie Morton did, right? and infinitely more did something amazing in that suffering. And in fact, it really wasn't the amazing part that he went through the suffering and was able to do what he did on the cross, but in fact, the amazing thing is what comes because of his suffering. See, his suffering, Peter says, is what brings us into a right relationship with him. Look at verse four. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. What does that mean? Christ was put on the cross he was killed, and then he rose again. And, and that suffering in us, those of us who have embraced that suffering by faith, have now become people who suffer. We suffer for the name of Christ. Now, yes, I get it. You know, we don't suffer like some parts of the world. We don't suffer like these people that Peter was necessarily speaking to. We certainly didn't suffer exactly like Christ. But what we have, have experienced is that the suffering Jesus Christ did that day on the cross, has now made a way for us to live forever. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about what that looks like, what it means. And, um, and we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus has called us to live in a certain way. Jesus has called us to do some things and to not do some things in relationship to who we are as followers of Christ. And, and let me just tell you, I'm gonna talk about some things that we're not supposed to be engaged in, and Michael's gonna talk about some things that we are supposed to be engaged in, but I wanna warn you that this is not about earning my salvation. This is not about some way I or, you know, get favor with God by the things that I do. If you're here just checking out the faith, you need to understand that you're gonna hear some things today that might feel like, oh, I always go to church and they tell me the things I'm not supposed to do and the things that I am supposed to do. But, um, but why we say that today is because as followers of Christ, what I do and what I don't do does three things. First, it brings glory to God when I obey him. Second, it transforms me into more of who God wants me to be and third, it draws people into a relationship with Him. It, it, it exposes the weakness and the fallacy and the longing, kind of like it exposed it to Danny in the video when she started to see that friends around her were living in a different way, thinking in a different way, and it made them have to. She made her have to evaluate her life. I mean, yeah, it was all the conversations in some senses about why things are the way they are. It was all the investigative stuff. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it was because her friend lived differently. The friends that she was around who knew Jesus, man, they had something she didn't have. I mean, we're supposed to live in a certain way, not because it earns favor with God, not because we can somehow outweigh our bad with our good, but because it It brings glory to God. It it transforms us. And it draws people into a relationship with him. Look what he says. in uh, Starting in verse... Well, let's start with... just Let me just read verse 1 again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past... Suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Here's what what Peter's saying. As a follower of Christ, there may have been a time for you to live like this, with sexual perversion and mind-altering substances going into you. There may have been a time, just as a side note, isn't that strange that Peter was writing this 2,000 years ago and we are still majorly struggling with the exact same things? Go to prison. And well, not you go to prison, but Tom goes to prison. Not Tom goes to prison. Tom works in the prison. Let's get this right. Okay? Tom, Tom works in the prison. And I'm telling you, if you would ask Tom the question, two things are getting men in trouble in prison, right? Alcohol and drugs and sexual immorality, right? that's what's killing them and it's the same thing that's getting us today it's the same thing it's the same thing that got peter and all his friends in the past the same kinds of issues that's the things that paul saying or peter is saying listen if you're going to if you're going to be a follower of christ there was a time for that but that time is not now there was a time for those things but that time is not now one of the things that that draws people into a relationship with christ is a life that is lived differently. When I was 17 years old, uh, I got an opportunity to go to Young Life Camp between my junior and senior year in high school with three of my friends. And and we all had life-changing experiences there. I think I had trusted Christ as my Savior when I was about 12, but hadn't really walked with him. And, And my experience at that Young Life Camp changed my life, changed the trajectory of my life. We got back, and uh, one of the first things that we did when we came back was, uh, was the senior football players' work day. And on that day, all the seniors on the football team had to come to the high school stadium and do different things that kind of helped get prepared for the season. One of the things that I had to do was paint a blocking dummy. Not a dummy, a sled. And uh, I was the dummy. It was the sled. And, uh, and I was there with my friend Mike. Mike and I had known each other basically our whole lives. We'd played sports together. We had partied together. We had done everything that high school athletes and friends were supposed to do together in that day. And, uh, and as we were painting along, he, he turned to me in a really, with a really solemn face, and he said, I heard that you and Moore, Moore was one of our friends, Jeff, who went with me on this camp, got religion. And... Uh, and I tried to explain to the best of my ability what that actually meant. And, uh, and over the course of the next few weeks, what, what really ended up happening is that I understood Mike didn't know what I had said and understood what I had said. But here's what Mike understood. I was no longer living. Jeff was no longer living. Brent was no longer living like we had been living before. And that was startling to him. In fact, if you, if you keep reading in First Peter, he says, you know, verse 4 says, with respect to this, they, those are the people who are pagans like Mike, are surprised when you don't join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they're going to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, Mike, as far as I know, was super impacted by our lives. I mean, by the, by the fact that we live differently than he did. And, and I wish I could say that, that, that dis, the decision that he made to trust Christ, or the, that he made a decision to trust Christ and, and find eternal life. But as far as I know, that never happened. What I do know is that Mike, although he never publicly proclaimed his distaste for us, he also never invited us anywhere or accepted our invitation and um, And it made me mad at first, right but um, but here's the thing about that: it probably shouldn't have made me mad as much as it should have made me compassionate. why? Well, because Mike and any of you who stand before Jesus without his death and resurrection applied to your life are sunk right that 's why in First Peter chapter three, it tells us um, you ought to be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that lies within you. You better be ready for that. You better be, you better be ready to, to, to live in a way that's different. Are you different? Has your faith made a difference? Not because you somehow have to live as in a way that you don't drink and you don't dance and you don't chew and you don't, you know, do the other thing, Grow with girls who do, right? Nope. I don't know. I don't know why they said that. Some of you grew up in churches like that and it feels legalistic and it is if that's what gets you to God. But it's not. If, that what, if that's what brings glory to God, draws you to, into a deeper relationship with him and draws people into a relationship with you. There are certain things that you're doing that, uh, that you shouldn't be doing. You know, if, if your freedom in Christ and your belief in moderation leads to the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth glass of wine, then you're really no different than the world. If your phone, which is supposed to be this awesome instrument for finding out information, if it has become a gateway into fantasy and illicit images, man, you're living in in the way that the rest of the world's living. And if you just follow any news media with all the stuff, all the information, all the pain, all the suffering, you know, so much of it comes from these six things. So much of it comes from your inability to control your sexual immorality. And so much of it comes from illicit drugs and alcohol in our bodies, And, man, the world wants to see something different. I'm not saying in amongst themselves, obviously, uh, sex in the right context is awesome. I'm not saying that that a drink of wine is a terrible thing. Uh, What I'm saying is that the world needs to see us differently. There are some things for the glory of God, for our own personal development, and for the love of the people who don't yet know Christ that we need to be putting aside. But there's also some things that we need to be taken on, and Michael's going to tell you about those now.
1: talking about is our witness, right? Um, how we witness, how we, how we tell others about what we've seen. And, um, you know, as, as Doug shared, you know, really being a witness is, is about two things, um, really. It's um, about abandoning or avoiding our sin, avoiding sin altogether. And I'm going to be talking about how do we love others in order to be a better witness to Christ. And, you know, we all witness whether we realize it or not. We all witness to something. Um, witness literally means to tell others what you've seen or experienced. And I know I witnessed to my kids recently, this last week, about how great Javi's Mexican food is. So I witnessed to them about Javi's. And, um, and just yesterday, uh, I witnessed to my kids about what it looks like to have blood pressure uh, 20 points higher Um, during the Baylor-Texas game. because I was pulling for my Baylor Bears. And uh, during the first three quarters, they witnessed um, my blood pressure going up. And we all witness to something every day. My challenge to you and to myself is to think about how we can best witness to Christ. All that he's done for us. All that he's sacrificed for us. um, All that he's doing for us so that others might be drawn to him and give him glory. Let's read The text together, the rest of this text together. Starting in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter starts off this passage with a reminder that we are in our last days. Our last days is not necessarily our our physical days on earth. Um, It is meaning that we, as a people, are nearing the end times. That Jesus could literally return at any moment to take us home. Are we ready? Are you ready? Peter emphasizes the urgency and the gravity. It's like he's saying, okay, pay attention, everyone. Time is short. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Time is precious and time is short. And and what does he say? The first thing he says is that we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And to be self-controlled and sober-minded is simply this. To live in such a way that the only thing that has control over our minds, our hearts, and our behavior is Jesus. That's really what self-control means. That the only thing, the only person who has control over our life is Jesus. That's what being self-controlled and sober-minded is. And You know, it's so easy in today's digital world, on-demand world, the have-it-your-way world, where we can have so many influences and information at our fingertips, like Doug was talking about. Maybe for you, it's social media, it's TV, it's sports. I love sports. We all love sports. Well, most of us do. Podcasts, talk radio. Maybe it's streaming 37 episodes of something on Netflix. Um, uh, Maybe it's... Hulu, Disney Plus, whatever, we have access to so much information at our fingertips, and that in and of itself is not bad, but we need to ask ourselves this question. Are we letting the world consume us and shape our minds and hearts? One of the best ways to check your own temperature in this area is to do a quick time check. So think about for the last week, the last seven days, how you spent your time. Okay. How many hours do you think you spent consuming things of God? Prayer, time in the word, worship, inspirational Christian content. Okay. Got that number? Now, add up the number of hours you spent consuming information and entertainment from the world. My guess is that if you're like me and like most of us, it's probably at least 5 to 1, 10 to 1 with the worldly content. Sad to say. But God calls us to be distinct. He's called us to be set apart. To be holy. He called us, calls us to be his witnesses. To reflect Christ in everything we say and do. Well, how can we expect to witness to Christ or to reflect Christ if what we are consuming is majority of it is from the world? You've heard the phrase garbage in, garbage out, right? Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely or admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think about such things what you have learned and received put it into practice and the god of peace will be with you henry nallan said this he said time constantly threatens to become our great enemy in our contemporary society it often seems that not money but time enslaves us time is one of the great resources that we have matthew 5:13 says You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. When my daughter Grace was about one years old, she had the following favorite baby foods. Pretty much it was all she would eat. Carrots, sweet potatoes, and pumpkin. Okay, We thought it was great. We happily fed her these favorite foods on the regular, until one day, right around this time this picture was taken, we woke up and realized our daughter was orange, okay? You can't tell it really, it made a little bit in her hands, but she literally looked like an Oompa Loompa when we put her in the bathtub against the white um, tub. Her skin started turning orange because why? Everything she was consuming was orange. I wonder how many of us, if we are honest, are turning into the color of the world. I wonder if many of us have consumed so much of the world that we look just like the world. And God calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. He calls us to be salt and light, to be distinct, to point to Christ with our life. You are what you eat, right? You've heard that phrase so many times. You are what you consume. What are you consuming? Peter's challenge to us is to be self-controlled and sober-minded, to limit what we consume of the world, And to guard our minds so that we can maintain our saltiness and be the best witness to Christ that we can be. Well, how else can we be a better witness to Christ? Peter says in the next verse that we can accomplish this by loving one another earnestly. And earnestly simply means with sincerity. We're not to love out of obligation or check the box and pat ourselves on the back and say, good job. Uh, Rather, we're to love with all sincerity like we mean it with our whole heart with passion and joy have you ever known someone who loved like this i feel like my dog riley is a good example of this okay that's him if you see this and he's a big border doodle and you can't really tell but he's pretty tall and he's a big bundle of joy and for some reason through no nothing that i've done he just loves me unconditionally you know and he every time i come home he just wants to tackle me and play and run around He's a great example of loving earnestly. But a human example of that is um, when I was 18 years old. I was 18 years old. I was not a believer. And I'd never been snow skiing before. And I wanted to go snow skiing. So what do you do? You go on a ski trip with the youth group, with the church youth group. Um, Here I am, the skinny, knuckle-headed kid. um, Didn't know anyone on the trip. There's this guy named Trey. He's 25 years old, sitting right next to me on the bus. And here I am, this obnoxious uh, teenager, and he didn't know me from Adam. Never met me before. And um, I'm quite confident that I was very annoying and very unlovable at the time. I'm very confident of that, and he's reminded me of that. But all Trey did was one thing. He loved me. He asked me questions about myself. He laughed at my dumb jokes. He spent time with me. And I don't recall him ever giving me one spiritual conversation deep conversation I don't recall him ever giving me the four spiritual laws or or anything like that but what did he do he simply loved me earnestly and he modeled for me what a true christian looks like and i wanted what he had i wanted his joy i wanted to be like him and on that trip i gave my life to christ and it's never been the same why because he loved me earnestly 1 corinthians 13 says love is patient and kind you know this it does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. That's a hard one for me. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, when we love others earnestly, we have an incredible witness to Christ. We literally point people to Christ with our life and with our words Our life says to a watching, hurting world, I love you, but Christ loves you even more, so much more that he died for you. And that is the essence of the gospel, right? Do you love others so well that people can't help but ask why you love them? Or how can I get some of what you have? Personal reflection time. Are you loving others in your life in such a way that makes people notice? Does anyone want to be like you? It's convicting. I, I don't know right now if anyone wants to be like me, and that's convicting. But that's what real love is all about. Not for me, but so that I might point people to Christ. But wait, there's a little bit more here. You see, Peter tells us that it's not enough to just love your friends and your family. We can all do that, right? We all do that pretty well. But we need to love our neighbors and gasp. Even strangers. Paul says in verse 9 that we need to show hospitality. Hospitality literally means to open your home to strangers. What Peter is calling us is next level type stuff here. He's calling us to show our love and to witness to Christ by welcoming strangers into our homes. To feed them. To offer them a place to sleep. To give them refuge. To make them feel comfortable. To live life with them. And in doing so, we are witnessing to Christ Christ. And I know for a fact, I know for a fact that many of you are crushing in this area and I give you huge props. But I would also venture to say that many of you struggle with the idea of welcoming strangers into your home. I get it. Your home is your refuge, your happy place, right? It's, it's private, it's protected, it's yours. But if I may be so bold, I would like to offer up this little truth bomb. That none of it, none of it is actually really yours. All that we have is from the Lord. Everything that we have. Psalm twenty-four, one, And all that we have is temporary and fleeting. It's really on loan to us from God for the next hundred years or so. It's not ours. What is it for? God has given us what we have. All that we've have. He's blessed us so that we can use it yes for our comfort but also for His glory and to point people and draw people to Jesus. That's it. That's what it's all for. It's All the beautiful decorations, the furniture, the the accent lighting in our homes, it's all a tool really to point people to Jesus. If we're using it, I believe, the way God's called us to do. And what if we live that way every week? What if we made it our goal every week to just meet one stranger? Just one stranger. Could be our neighbor, could be someone at the coffee shop, that we can invite into our home to share our food. Maybe we don't start there, maybe we go invite them to dinner or coffee. But what if all the hard-earned money and stuff that we have is really just to provide a place to entertain strangers? What if that's really what it's all about? Well, I think the two greatest barriers in our growth in Christ and our discipleship is our love of comfort. Do you love comfort? Do you worship comfort? I know I struggle with this myself. And the other thing is our misuse of our time. Imagine with me for a moment, if you will, and you can close your eyes if that helps you. You and your spouse are at home one evening. You put the kids to bed. You're sitting on the couch. Maybe you're enjoying a nice glass of wine. You're catching up on your favorite Netflix show. And all of a sudden, the power goes out. You hear a rustling in the bushes out front, a loud bang, bang. The front door gets kicked in, and five armed men in masks storm into your living room. Two of them point a gun at your head. The other three, go get your kids. They bound them, they gag them, they put hoods, hoods on your heads. And they shuttle you into the back of an unmarked van and they shuttle you away. Pretty shocking and terrifying to think about. What's even more shocking is uh, that this kind of scene is not from a movie. It actually happens every day to Christians in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, North Korea, Iran. It happens all the time. As you may be aware, Afghanistan was just recently taken back over by the Taliban. And Christians in Afghanistan are now called secret believers. And I've had the benefit from my previous um, opportunity to actually meet some of these secret believers. And they're underground. They've had to go underground because their friends and family have been kidnapped, beaten, and even murdered. We take for granted in this country that the freedom that we have, that in this city we can host a Bible study in our home and invite unbelieving friends to come over, We can have a neighborhood gav- gathering in our driveway openly in the name of Jesus without fear of being carted away in a windowless van. And yet if we're honest, how often do we take advantage of this freedom? How often do we walk down the street and knock on our unbelieving neighbor's door? But what if we drew inspiration from the believers in the Bible or the secret believers in Afghanistan and we mustered the courage to step out in faith? What if we were to step out of our comfort zone to truly love our neighbor? What if we love people we don't really know, like Jesus loves us? Here are some practical ideas for you. Number one, make a list of three people you know that are not believers. Make a list of three people you know, not believers. Number two, pray. Pray for them by name. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to intentionally connect with them. Pray for that opportunity And then number three, look for the opportunities that God gives you. I, I guarantee you, if you pray, God will give you those opportunities. And then step out in faith when he gives you those opportunities. Maybe it's approaching that dad of your son's teammate on the soccer team. Maybe it's the mom of the person sitting next to you at the pool while your daughter is at swim practice. Maybe it's the neighbor three doors down who you drive by every day and have never talked to. Make a list, pray, take a step of faith, and let God do the rest. Invite them to coffee. Invite them to meet out for dinner, to come to your house, to grill burgers or whatever. I promise you that God will honor your obedience. What I can't promise you is that it won't be awkward or uncomfortable. In fact, God never promises we will be comfortable. Did you know that? In fact, God promises us that when we follow him, when we follow him, and truly follow him as a disciple, we will suffer. We will face persecutions. 2 Timothy 12 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In conclusion, we've talked about the urgency that God reminds us of in the end times. Time is short. We don't know how much time we have left on this earth. And because of this urgency, we have only a few short years to witness to Christ to as many people as possible. I want everyone to know about Jesus and the love. That he has for me. As Doug said, how do we do this? As Doug said, we need to first abandon sin and avoid sin so that we can be distinct and set apart. We need to have self control for what we consume so that our minds and hearts are set on God and we can retain our saltiness and our distinction. We're called to love others earnestly without compulsion so they will see our love and be drawn to Christ in us. And lastly, we need to be hospitable, especially to strangers opening our homes to love and serve as a reflection of Christ. And when we do these things, we will be our best witness to Christ, which is to point people to Jesus, and we will glorify God. 1 Peter 4.11 says that when we love and serve others with word and deed, we bring great glory to God. And glory just means to give praise and honor, to make his name great. And that is our ultimate purpose in life, to give God glory, as Doug said. You see, we're here on earth for something bigger than ourselves. We're here to be on mission for the gospel. We're here on earth to bring glory and praise to our Father. And when we do these things we talked about, guess what? We will be more fulfilled than we can ever imagine. I promise you this, there's no greater joy in life than being in the presence of God and walking closely with Him. There's no greater joy than being in the presence of God. Let's learn to be in his presence, to witness to the goodness, the greatness, and the grace of Jesus so that others may come to experience the same joy as well. I hope you'll join me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Thank you for dying for us, for being raised on the third day for us. Thank you for loving us unconditionally, even when we don't deserve it. Thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And God, may your love for us fill us up so much that we might overflow into the lives of others, that we might be such a great witness to those and point people to Jesus. Father, we love you, and we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.